listening to the Paul McGuire Report. This is Paul McGuire. Maybe I should title today's program Chasing the Mad Hatter, because trying to find truth and trying to separate the facts from falsehood in today's environment of perpetual lies is a big challenge, as you know. Just do research now in the new internet, and it is a new internet. The internet and social media that I got involved with early on in the earlier phases of the internet was relatively speaking back then, relatively speaking, it was open and to a large degree free. In other words, you could type in just about any organization, any individual, any point of view, and the search engines would allow you to discover all kinds of facts about a wide range of things, and they, the, the, the search engines were not uh, using algorithms and bots and other computer technology to artificially direct you in the path that they wanted you to go down so they could spoon-feed you or brainwash you with the information they wanted you to believe was true. Not that it was really true, but they wanted to persuade you that it was true. So now we're in Alice in Wonderland completely. Any of you who have used the Internet for a number of years, 10 years at least, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And every day it accelerates and it gets worse. As I commented the other day, I'll I'll type in the name of somebody. Somebody or somebody's organization or whatever that I trust their point of view, I trust their facts, etc., etc. And while I'm in the middle of attempting to to type in or link to their uh, social media or Rumble or whatever, while I'm in the middle of it, never mind Google and Facebook and stuff, where it's now impossible. It's impossible if what you're looking for is information that is true, but it's not politically correct. The search engines, the social media uh, pages, are programmed to divert you into meaningless mazes or a delivery of counterfeit information. I mean, it is crazy on the internet right now. It is the wild, wild west. And so if you like type in euthanasia, it used to be, if I typed in euthanasia, and then I typed in Rockefeller, or I typed in uh, uh, Malthu, the philosopher who created the Malthusian ideas that the globalist elite going back 100 years or more all rallied behind his ideas. His central premise, Malthus' central premise was that all of mankind's problems stem from excessive population growth, and the only way we can solve the problems of planet Earth and make planet Earth sustainable is to literally wipe out, by the millions and millions, wipe out or euthanize all excess in the excess in their eyes population. So population growth was perceived by the, the philosopher and backslidden clergyman Malthu as as the ultimate enemy of mankind. Now none of that is true by the way. It's not true scientifically, it's not true numerically, mathematically, statistically, it simply is not true. Mankind's greatest problem is not even remotely excessive population growth. In fact, I'll take it even further. I remember many, many, many years ago, I must have been really young. I can't remember what age I was. So I'm going to pick an age that's probably 
I guess, close to the age I was when I heard it. So I suppose I was around 13 years old. Back then, if you go into the, if you travel through back in time through the Wayback Machine, many of you will not know the name that I'm talking about. But people who have been around a while, you will recognize this name instantly because he hosted one of the biggest, most watched television shows uh, in America and around the world. His name, the host, his name was Art Linkletter. His name back then was a household word. word. There's nobody you could compare him to today because, because of the way the media and computers and everything is set up. Audiences are now, you can't get these massive audiences. Once upon a time in America, for example, again, a guy like there was a, a faith healing television evangelist. Many will know his name, many of you will not. His name was Oral Roberts, okay? I guess this goes, yeah, this goes back to the 50s. So it's even before my time in watching him on TV. Now, Oral Roberts was a faith healer and, you know, prayed for people and allegedly they were healed miraculously. I'm not here to comment on, on that. I'm here to comment on the fact that back when Oral Roberts, the faith healer, was on television, he uh, would, every week, he would get massive, massive audiences. Why? Because back then, there were only three major networks in America, and they were ABC, CBS, NBC. So there was ABC, CBS, and NBC. So you either tuned in to one of those, quote, network channels, or you couldn't watch anything. There were very few, minimally, there were very few UHF stations. There were no, practically no, very few alternative stations. The alternative stations were like super low budget playing black and white reruns. So Oral, when Oral Roberts was very clever, and so he would have movie stars and celebrities, big time celebrities in that time period, maybe not in today's time period, but the big time celebrities back then, one would be Jerry Lewis, who was a, the comedian, who was a regular guest on his program. And so because Oral Roberts uh, concocted a mixture of miracles in his programming, preaching in his programming, and regular guest celebrities. So every weekend, and I think his show was on Sunday evening family time, so he had one of the most sought-after time periods. It was a minimum of one hour, his show. And his ratings and the amount of people that watched it, I don't know how many millions and millions and millions of Americans watched it every week. Not all of them were religious. It was just entertaining. And many, many times, he quite often surpassed the ratings and the amount of viewers uh, on the competing networks. You know, I forgot which network he was on. But let's say the competing networks were uh, CBS and uh, ABC. He would clobber them. Whatever the competing networks were, he would clobber them in viewership. And once again, the amount of millions of people who watched it uh, was not close to the level of a Super Bowl or something, but it was in that neighborhood. Because again, again, back then, there were only three networks, so you only had three choices. So it's not like today where there's, you add up Google, Facebook, TikTok, you know, Rumble. I mean, you could go on and on and on. You add up all that. You ought to add up all the cable channels 
the direct TV channels, the HBOs and the Showtimes, the, the Roku channels, which we're on, uh, and all these other channels, you now have today hundreds, if not thousands, of competing channels. So that has caused the, the big pie of entertainment and news and music. That pie is now divided. In the old days, you could cut yourself a big, fat piece of apple pie. That, that would represent audience share easily. Not easily, but if you had the money, you could get a huge audience share. Today, the pies are my, the slices of pie, the audience share. They're all microscopically super thin slices. In fact, they're probably paper thin slices of apple pie. So nobody, no matter how talented, no matter how good they are, can get those same massive audiences that they did in the, the, the generation of the 50s and the 60s when there were only three networks. So I was, uh, for over 10 years, I was a regular guest on the biggest shows on the Fox News Network and the Fox Business Channel and CNN. That was before all those channels sold out and went completely Looney Tunes. When I was on Fox, at that time, it was among conservatives and patriotic people and Christians. When I was on Fox News Network back then, it was in the glory days when, when their biggest stars, news stars, uh, were on. And these people had, I don't know, anywhere from well, let's say they had an average viewing, the stars on Fox News Network had an average viewing, let's say, of 8 million people per show on a cable news network. That was huge. That, that was considered massive and huge, and it was. And I was on those shows all the time. Very quickly after the fiasco of the, of, of the, of the Trump uh, Trumpocalypse, no pun intended, the Fox News is a, is a shell of what it used to be. CNN is like a newspaper that somebody reads on the subway in New York and throws it on the floor and people stomp on it. They have minimal audiences. And then when they get somebody like Tucker Carlson, who, who brought in a, at, at that time, was a, he had a decent audience, but because he told too much truth, they fired him. Okay, my point is, this whole uh, uh, new dynamic was predicted by television and media analysts, you know, like uh, 20, 30 years ago. And they were announcing that the day of what they called narrow casting had arrived. Narrow casting was a word used in contrast to the traditional word used by television and radio network people. They used back then a word called broadcasting. That's why it was ABC, the American Broadcasting Company or NBC, the National Broadcasting Company, or CBS uh, Broadcast. The, 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 I forgot what the C stands for, but the BS, no pun intended, after C. <laughs> I'm not trying to be vulgar. I just came out because, as I was trying to explain it to you, <laughs> it, it is obviously a double entendre. I'm not trying to, trying to be vulgar, but I do find it humorous. So, so CBS, can't remember what C stands for. I'll let you decide what BS really stands for. Actually, what it really stood for in the eyes of CBS was broadcasting system. So uh, it could have been the continental broadcasting system. I don't know. In any case, uh, they were broadcasters, and their goal was to attract the largest, widest audiences possible. 
okay, which the people like Oral Roberts did. Then when cable television, satellite television, and all these alternative, alter, all these technological alternatives to broadcasting arrived, including like internet broadcasting, podcasting, watching films and TV shows on your laptop and your cell phone. This is all, these are all examples of narrowcasting. So instead of, instead of searching for the biggest, largest, broadest audience, as in the term broadcasting, the day of narrowcasting had arrived. So now the savvy uh, television producer was not looking for the biggest audience. He or she was looking for what would be called the right audience uh, that you would go after, let's say, conservatives. In the old days, CBS, NBC, ABC tried to go after, very unsuccessfully, both conservatives and liberals at the same time. But that doesn't work very well. In the era of narrowcasting, everybody is now trying to narrowly define their audience. So you don't go after conservatives and liberals. You either go after conservatives or liberals, not both at the same time. And then you keep refining it into a smaller and smaller and more focused and a more narrow segment of the audience. So after that, you just don't go for conservatives or liberals. You now go for different types of conservatives, like Christian conservatives would be one narrow casting. Libertarian conservatives would be another example of narrow casting. Uh, uh, establishment conservatives would be another type of narrow casting. And the same thing in, in the liberals' spectrum. So everything is more in focus. It's more refined. The upside is you can do very well if you capture your target audience and you know who your target audience is. The downside is, and it's not necessarily a downside, the downside is that you, um, you don't go, you know, like fishing with this gigantic, uh, I'm, not, I'm not a big fisherman, but what do you call the, the net. You don't go with a gigantic net trying to capture fish, leaves, rocks, and you know eels and everything else at the same time. You're going for a specific kind of fish, so you use a specific kind of bait. So narrow casting, and then after narrow casting, you keep narrowing it. Now, many people still don't understand that concept in the broadcasting industry, whether it's radio, television, satellite, cable, or whatever. Episodic TV is an example of that. So, so they. Because they don't understand the name of the game in media, they confuse having the largest audience with having the right audience. Now, a man I know who I highly respect and who happens to be a genius in this whole area, let's just call him Don. And if he happens to be listening or his staff happens to be listening, Don will know that I'm addressing him and then I don't betray uh, our confidence. Don was a genius in this area. He understood this decades before just about anybody else, and he certainly understood it decades before any Christian broadcasters. And he would continually say to radio talk show hosts and broadcasters, etc., who were always in a quest for a misguided, general, wide open audience. He would always challenge him and saying, what are you interested in attracting? A large audience 
or the right audience. And then he would define for them very clearly, very lucidly, what a definition of the right audience is. And he would say these words to both Christian broadcasters and secular broadcasters. He would say, the right audience is the audience that will purchase and buy the products and services on your television stations, radio stations, and networks. He said, he'd have to remind them. And, and the, the ratings people like Arbitron, they were very resistant to this, resistant to this because it was truth and it exposed the fact that they had a racket. He, he would remind them that your goal is to attract the right audience and you determine the right audience is because the right audience will allow you to make a profit. It will allow you to pay your bills. It will allow you to rent your uh, radio stations and your TV broadcasting stations and pay your, your, your people's salaries, et cetera, and it will allow you to expand. Whereas if you're just getting a gigantic audience of people that will not support you financially, because they either don't donate, they don't contribute, or they don't um, uh, support the advertisers or buy the products and services of your advertisers or, or buy nutritional products or cars or whatever you're selling. If they're not willing to support all that and they just want to take from you in terms of listening or watching your programming for free, but they're not willing to, to be a partner with you. Uh, and he, he was talking to both secular and Christian uh, broadcasters. He said, then they're not the right audience. Now, really simple concept, but it's still an enigma to a lot of people. So the goal, this, this should, see, Fox, they may have a ton of money. It doesn't mean they have a ton of brains. Because the people who run Fox News Network right now, they got to where they are because of uh, they're, they're the offspring of the guy who built Fox, the owner of Fox, uh, Murdoch. Murdoch's sons and daughter don't necessarily have the savvy. They don't have the, the airtight knowledge. And so you now have the Fox News Network, which is floundering now. I promise you, Fox News is going to dive and go into the tank just like CNN did and has not yet recovered from it. Fox News is going to also go into the tank unless they make intelligent changes. Because they're making that same mistake. They're going after the, the wrong audience. They're trying to, to bring in this generic big audience of, of, and, and, and broadcast stuff that is offensive to conservatives and offensive to liberals. And then they're trying to appease the conservatives and appease the liberals at the same time. That's an explosive disaster. And it doesn't work. Whereas. When Fox News was going after the conservative audience, that was their right audience, and they made a fortune. CNN was going after a liberal audience. And when CNN started to appease everybody, they flopped. They died. Uh, because that principle, that entire radio broadcasting philosophy doesn't work. All right, that's a side note. But this is all about strategy winning people, attracting the right people. Uh, it affects and impacts evangelism, uh, Christian communications, secular communications, all kinds of things. And so the goal 
The goal is to have what is called the right message. And the right message has to be targeted to the right audience. So, for example, a lot of people want to, want to know why I do things the way I do things on the Paul McGuire Report. Because the way I do things has always been significantly different than the way other people do things. Going back to my days on the Paul McGuire Show, a nationally syndicated radio program I did three hours a day for 10 years drive time. I never got in front of the microphone and said stupid things like, Hello, everybody out there in Radioland. That's phony. Who's everybody out there in Radioland? It's a mythological, generic, non-existing, non-existing wide audience. I wasn't interested in winning or attracting everybody. I wasn't. My goal was not to get the biggest audience I could under the mistaken theory that my evangelism, my, my biblical worldview, uh, will make a bigger impact if only I will dilute it, water it down, and go after the big audience. This, this is the epidemic of thinking among Christian ministries and Christian broadcasters on radio and television and the internet that is killing them and has been killing them for years and they still don't get it. Again, my goal was never to get the big audience. What good does it do if I'm attracting, because I'm diluting my message, and I'm trying to appease everybody? So, see, when you're trying to appease everybody, when you stand for nothing, I forgot the rest of the expression, but you know what I'm talking about. The goal was to pinpoint and target a specific audience. Now, for me, Specific audience, my target audience, were those people that either love Jesus Christ or would or or who would love Jesus Christ if it was presented to them in a way that they could relate to in a manner they could understand. So my goal was to reach a target audience, which just happened to be a very large audience, but that wasn't the goal. A target audience of people who either love Jesus Christ or people who I believed would, in time, fall in love with Jesus Christ, become saved, if the message of Jesus Christ was presented to them in a way they could relate to and in a way they could understand. My goal was never to water down the program and, and, throw, and, and uh, do programming which offered a little bit of everything to everybody. So it's just a generic blah. I know big-time evangelists, that's their approach. Their approach is to water down the message, water down the gospel, okay, so that it appeals to everybody. Now, this makes, this, this creates the illusion, because people see these large stadiums, and it creates the illusion that you're effective. It creates the illusion that you're reaching America for Jesus Christ. But in actuality, you're not. Because respected pollsters and researchers have said for years that some of these big evangelists, that the overwhelming majority of people that come forward on television to, to, to pray the sinner's prayer, are people that are already saved. And the people that are coming forward 
uh, for prayer, the largest number of them are not already saved. They belong to the actual evangelistic staff. And so when you see the flood of people coming forward and kneeling uh, at the front of a crusade, most of them are already saved, or they're, or they're volunteers working with the evangelistic ministry. So, so the actual numbers of non-believers who are actually being saved that you see going forward is a very tiny fraction of the amount of people you see going forward. And then on top of it, these respected pollsters did all kinds of precise measurements and discovered, they, they tested what we could call the longevity of what happened to people who went forward during some of these crusades where, where people did make, where non-believers did uh, receive Christ. And then they did follow-up visits with people all across the United States. They did follow-up vis- visits. And they discovered that the overwhelming percentage of the people that went forward to get saved who were not saved to begin with, that very soon afterwards, and and months afterwards, and six months afterwards, and a year afterwards, and sometimes a couple of years afterwards, something like 80% or more, and I think I'm I'm being too generous, something like 80%, 87% or more of those people they, they walked away from their born-again experience. In other words, it, whatever happened to them, it didn't last. They weren't going to church. They weren't being discipled. They weren't living the Christian life. They weren't reading the Word. So, so whatever the, the, the outcome was of the evangelistic crusade, it didn't deliver what they expected it to. Because of the—see, by the time you— reduce all the people that were saved to begin with that are going forward, and then you reduce all the people that are working for the evangelistic ministry who are going forward, and then you reduce the huge percentage of people who were not saved but were saved that night or whatever and did go forward, when you follow up on their lives, they begin to walk away from their born-again experience. They begin to reject their salvation experience at the Crusades. And you have like 80 to 85% or whatever it is of those people, if you follow up on their lives, they've walked away from Christ. There's no, it's not a lasting conversion. They never became actual disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, am I saying there shouldn't be crusades? No, but I support any, any effort, even if it's not, um, even if it's not as, as productive as it should be, I, I, I support Anyone who is standing up for Christ, anyone who is making an effort for Jesus Christ and the gospel and winning souls, even if I don't agree with everything they do, and even if I don't agree with the way they do it, I support all of them, unless they're, you know, false prophets or, or, or committing some sins or ripping people off or something like that. With, with those notable exceptions, it is my policy to support anyone who is taking a stand for Christ, okay? It is not my job. I'm not, what I said was not to criticize anybody. The purpose in me saying what I said was, I want to be, for myself and for others, part of a, part of a process that helps others become far more effective so they can not only win people to Jesus Christ at Crusades, 
but that they can effectively make disciples out of those people. So they may not be delivering on the level that that would be nice, but I'm going to support them anyway. Because we live in a time when any ray of light, even if it's not as much as we would like, any ray of light of God and Jesus Christ is noticeable, and any ray of light lights up the darkness in a dark world. So they have my support always, and I don't nitpick them to death. Okay, so, but if we analyze it, and we look under the hood, and say, what can we do to make this more strategic, more efficient, more long-lasting? The key is, they're making the mistake in going after the large, generic audience. They're making the mistake in going after the biggest audience. They're making the mistake in trying to be all things to all people, which Paul said, but you can twist that, and American Christianity has twisted the statements of the Apostle Paul beyond what he intended it to mean. So, they would be more successful if they didn't concentrate on how big a stadium they could get or how large uh, a crowd they could get at the crusade. They would be better off if they didn't focus in on getting as many bodies to walk forward uh, while the crusade was being televised and doing TV close-ups of what looks like people praying to come to Christ. Because that's all designed to create the illusion that we're the latest and greatest thing and everybody's coming to Christ. It's it's using carnal methods to achieve a spiritual end. It would be better that they go after the right audience. Now, what is the right audience? The right audience will be a smaller audience, but it's an audience that is truly spiritually hungry. It's an audience that, after you lead them to Jesus Christ, the possibility of these of this smaller audience becoming true disciples of Jesus Christ is far, far higher than just going after the big audience. So the goal and the reorientation should be, the goal should be to go after the right audience, even if you know the right audience is smaller. Because after all, what is the goal? To satiate your ego? so that you can do photo ops of yourself preaching to, to big crowds. I know what it's like. I've been guilty of it myself. Um, the goal is the right audience. And the right audience is the audience that is truly hungry, that they re- will come to Christ, they want to be disciples. And then you wouldn't see this massive drop-off and massive backsliding of people coming to Christ uh, at Crusades. Now, even though... Going after the big audience in the long run reduces your effectiveness. I still thank God, and I'm sure you do too, for the people we hear about that did go to a crusade by a notable evangelist. They they weren't saved when they went there. They went to the to the they saw it on TV or they went forward during the altar call, and they were authentically saved, and and they became disciples of Christ. And to this day, they are committed born again Christians. And you hear about people like that, and so do I. And so I rejoice in that, and that's why I don't criticize uh, these evangelistic ministries, because when the day is done, I do thank God deeply for the people that do come to Christ, and lives and families are changed. But the key is we can't, you can't make the, the assumption that you're going to, you know, the job of evangelism, all Christians can go on autopilot and fall asleep and, and not evangelize. 
and you just give that job to to a Billy Graham or or somebody like that, it's their responsibility. No, it's not their responsibility. It's our responsibility. So from the very beginning, with the Paul McGuire Show, my nationally syndicated radio talk show host, I went after the right audience. And for me, my specialty, and still is to this day, I like to do programming. I like to use a witnessing style. I like to use an evangelistic style that is targeted towards the right audience, which is the audience I believe the Lord has called me to go after. And those are the people, the people that hate true Christianity, the people that that don't like Jesus Christ, the people who are the most resistant and antagonistic towards the Bible, the people who are the most rebellious and the most sinful and the most hard-hearted are the people I am most interested in reaching with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am not interested in reaching the self-satisfied, materialistic-orientated people who don't think they need a Savior. I am interested in, in, in reaching out to the rebellious, the people who have been wounded, broken-hearted, the people that are demon-possessed and addicted, the people that, that have been treated like scum by churches and Christians. Those I am looking for, the people that have been damaged and bruised by this world. Because I discovered that when you go after that right audience, not only will they come forward and really give themselves to Jesus Christ, but they will be open to allowing the Spirit of God to save them radically, and they will be radical Christians in the sense of not demonstrating, quote, radical behavior, but in contrast to the bland, lukewarm behavior of of the latest in the American Christian Church, these former radicals and rebels and sinners become the most unfired Christians at all of all, and many of them go on to reach countless numbers of people. How do I know? I was once once upon a time in America, Paul McGuire was one such person, born in an atheistic and existentialist and atheist family in New York City. I was to- I hated Christianity with a passion. Of all the religions of the world, Christianity was probably the last religion I would have ever chosen. I was completely rebellious against Christianity. I despised Christian morality, Christian beliefs, Jesus Christ, and most of all, I hated the Christian religion, and I hated Christians. There are parts of my testimony that I have never told you, uh, and I probably never will, about what my visceral response was to Christians. Now, I talk about it in my book, Power From On High. And and I was one of the most in-your-face opponents of Christianity that there was. When I attended the University of Missouri, as I've told you before, but I tell the whole story in Power From One Eye, I remember it was like the first week of classes in my debate class, and these two Christian girls got up and, and chose evangelism and trying to win people to Jesus Christ as as a response to the, to the professor's assignment on choosing a, a, a debating content. So they so they presented the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and why we should all accept Jesus Christ, and that that was what they prepared for the debate class. And so they were supposed to be able to debate that position, and they were supposed to be able to defend that position that the claims of Jesus Christ were real. And I stood there, not stood there, excuse me, I sat there and looked at these two girls, 
And uh, remember, I, I was raised in a heavy-duty, high-powered, intellectual, creative, artistic home. I mean, I was reading hundreds of books a year. I, my parents were talking philosophy, atheism, film, culture. I was immersed in high-level thinking and, and all kinds of stuff. To put it bluntly, on an intellectual level, I was loaded for bear as an atheist and a secular humanist, and yes, even as a transhumanist, as a young child. So these two girls are trying to, for their debate, uh, they're trying to propose that Jesus is God and we all need to come to Christ. And within the constructs of the classroom, I raised my hand because that's what we were allowed to do, and I debated them factually on what they were proposing, that Jesus Christ was God and we needed to be born again to be saved. And I wasn't trying to be cruel, but I will admit that my my prejudice and my animosity, I'm sure, was energizing and fueling uh, the intensity of my debate with them. But I took apart and dismantled their debate, and I took apart, I took it apart in front of the classroom, and I took it apart and placed it in different pieces all over the classroom. Because from a logical, rational, intellectual, and even spiritual and theological point of view, they, they are, the case that they argued in the debate class was so flawed that I, because I did not like Christianity, I pounced on it. Didn't pounce on them. I pounced on what they were proposing, and of course, I felt bad afterwards because the girls, you know, they couldn't handle the intellectual pressure of the debate, and they both began to cry in tears, and I felt bad about that. But but inwardly, I was kind of disgusted because what I was saying to myself, because secretly, no, I'll tell you what it was. Secretly, deep down inside, I was hoping, I was genuinely hoping that somebody could actually win a debate with me. And I was secretly hoping that somebody would win a debate with me and, and prove to me through that debate that Jesus Christ really was God. Because even though back then I wouldn't have had admitted it to myself, deep, deep, deep down inside in the subterranean chambers of my soul, I was hungry for God. I was secretly in the darkness of my heart. I was secretly hoping that this God of love really did exist. And I was secretly hoping that somebody would clobber me in the debate and prove to me, on a rational, scientific, intellectual level, that, that Jesus was Lord, and, and win the debate against me, and prove that I wanted to be secretly, nobody would have known it, but secretly, I wanted to be defeated. Secretly, I wanted them to prove I was wrong. Because secretly, I wanted there to be a Jesus Christ, and a God that's good, and a God of love. You understand what I'm saying? So, um, I didn't respect Christians because they were, they didn't think through their position, uh, their position. they were intellectually shallow, etc., etc. Okay, in, in, in any case, I was in a quandary, though, because they actually reinforced their debate skills were so awful, they actually reinforced my, my atheistic beliefs. But secretly, I mean, I felt bad. For crying out loud, I felt bad. Who wants to reduce? As zealous as I was, I mean, I didn't want to reduce these girls to tears. I mean, I felt sorry for them. Because they didn't, you know, my family wasn't wealthy, but I had a huge advantage over them in, in the debate. I had an advantage over everybody in the debate classes. And that was, I was raised in a family where 
uh, family friends and my family and my father and mother and their friends were all intellectuals and were constantly bait, debating high-level concepts. So from my earliest childhood memories till college and beyond, my mind was programmed with, with like, you know, people who practice chess all the time are usually good chess players. I was saturated and downloaded with high-level debating skills, rational analytical skills that made me a kind of terminator. And, and that gave me an advantage that they couldn't possibly have had. So I, mean, I, I can't apologize for that. That's my life story. And later on, as you know, uh, God performed such an outrageously radical miracle in my life where I was supernaturally saved by God in the most awesome supernatural way that it changed everything. And I realized, dear Lord, Jesus Christ is God. Okay, you're listening to the Paul McGuire Report on Paul McGuire. Be sure to visit paulmcguire.us. That's paulmcguire.us. We'll be back in just a moment. You are listening to the Paul McGuire Report. This is Paul McGuire. So being raised in an atheistic household, existentialist household, secular humanist household, and through my own reading and thinking and stuff, hating Christianity. Okay, so, you know, we can plan our way in life based on what we think is the right information. So, for example, many of you listening to the Paul McGuire Report right now, you have children or grandchildren <clears throat> that, that are not walking with the Lord or they're not walking closely with the Lord. And it's a source of, uh, it's painful to you because you invested, I'm not talking about merely financially, but you invested your time, your energy, your prayers, your emotions. I mean, you remember all the acts of love that you sent the way of your sons and daughters and grandsons and granddaughters. And when, when, it, when it doesn't seem to materialize, it, it's painful. So you did everything you could. And, and the point is, you have to be very careful here. It's a slippery slope. The devil would like to trap you into the false belief where you condemn yourself and you say to yourself privately, if only I had been a better mother, if only I'd been a better father, if only I'd been more loving, if only I'd been a better example. Well, I guess the reason they're not walking with the Lord, I guess it's my fault. I guess if I hadn't gotten divorced, or I hadn't gotten divorced three times, or I hadn't done this, or I hadn't done that, I guess if I'd been a better Christian, <clears throat> they would be walking with the Lord. And so, so you condemn yourself, you beat yourself up. Now, you know, maybe it's true, or maybe it's not true, or maybe it is partially true. Maybe it's mostly not true. I mean, there's so many categories it could end up in. But the fact of the matter is, no one is perfect. No parent, no Christian parent is a perfect Christian parent. No parent, humanist parent, is a perfect parent. None of us are perfect parents. And your, your, your children and grandchildren, if when they have kids or whatever, they will not be perfect parents. So you can't blame yourself and necessarily take it upon yourself or, or falsely believe or falsely assume the devil's lie, which is that the reason 
your child or son or daughter or whatever down the line is not walking with the Lord is because of you. And then you torture yourself over it. That's a trap. That's a trap. Because you see, they have an accountability to God that's independent of you. You did the best that you could. You, I guarantee you, as bad as a parent, if you thought you were, most likely, if we were to really examine your life, as bad of a parent that you thought you were, as bad as a Christian parent that you thought you were, if we did a close-up and really examine your life, I think, I think that in the overwhelming number of cases, if we looked at most people's lives, that they were actually far, far better parents or far, far better Christian parents than they thought they were. And, and you're, you're distorted out of your guilt, and you're blaming yourself for things that are not necessarily your fault. Now, in some cases, it is your fault. But in many cases, we are overly critical of ourselves. And the reason we're overly critical of ourselves is precisely because we're Christians, and we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. God is love. We have the agape love of Jesus Christ living inside of us. That makes us unusually sensitive. It it potentially makes us unusually loving and caring. And as a consequence, even though it's great that we have this loving sensitivity, the downside is that we, we often can become the people who beat ourselves up and blame ourselves unnecessarily over a backslidden condition of a son or a daughter or grandson or granddaughter or whatever. So we're, we're unrealistically harsh, and that's a trap. We need to recognize. We need to recognize that entire thing that I just talked to you about for the last, I don't know, eight minutes. We need to recognize that th- these are not merely humanistic, relational, psychological problems which is what the world is telling us they are. We need to understand that the problems that we see are not the result of necessarily relational problems, psychological problems, etc., etc. At a deeper level, we need to understand that at a far deeper level, these problems are inevitably a reflection of the fact that all of this, the backsliding, the rebellion of children and grandchildren, etc., all of that stuff is ultimately evidence of a deeper, a far deeper level of what is called spiritual warfare, where if you were to blow away all the illusions and all the diversions, you would see it in its purest simplicity. And in its purest simplicity, it goes something like this. There is a devil. There are there, the devil uses spiritual deception. There are demons. There is the fact that each of us, including our children, are born with a fallen human nature or a sinful human nature. And to compound all this, and I want you to track with me on this one, because I believe that if you grasp it, because it took me a, a lifetime <clears throat> uh, to grasp this, this final part of the equation. And I believe that potentially it can set a lot of you free. But you and I live in a particular period of time in which there exists factors that have never existed to the point that they exist now. And by that, I mean specifically, you and I live in a time that in the social environment, in the cultural environment, in the uh, uh, family unit environment, 
of our nation and our media and our education, et cetera, et cetera. There are forces of the Antichrist spirit that have embedded themselves in the educational system, the entertainment industry, music industry, uh, uh, episodic TV, TV industry, television, news industry, politics, medicine, law, all these areas of life have been invaded by the spirit of Antichrist. And um, those forces, whether they're sociological or legal or psychological or the predominant viewpoint, which, which your very presence contradicts, all of those forces are at work far more than you and I realize. These forces, these Antichrist forces, are at work far, far more than you and I realize, and they are agitating, they are amplifying, they are stirring up, and they are creating dissent, division, argumentation, fighting, a war of worldviews, a war of beliefs, a war of morals. These outside institutionalized factors are agitating our family structures, our relationship between spouses, our relationship between our children and grandchildren. In their, there's agitation in their psychological being. They're, they're, they're getting into arguments with you based on the social engineering and programming that has been downloaded into their brains by, quote, a scientific dictatorship. And that scientific dictatorship is in the process of intentionally and strategically dismantling a Judeo-Christian America. Now, if you or people you know, you have a biblical worldview that is rooted and birthed out of the Old Testament and the New Testament, that's your framework for decisions, for morals, for belief systems, for ideas, for choices, for values, for boundaries, for all kinds of things. However, your children, unlike you and I, depending upon how old they are, they grew up in a different time zone. They grew up in a different sociological environment. They grew up in a different spiritual environment. They grew up in a different moral environment. They grew up in a totally different environment, which has molded them and shaped them and programmed them through social engineering to be highly oppositional towards your beliefs your way of living, and your values. So, so th there are several generations of Christian parents, depending upon your age category. There are numerous generations of Christian parents who not only have had to fight their traditional battles inherent in, in teenage mother, teenage father type interpersonal dynamics and, and battles over morals and battles over all these things that that have gone back a thousand generations. Not only have several generations of Christian parents had to deal with, with, the, with the proverbial inter-family battles, but now there are several generations of Christian parents that you, listen to me, please, I'm not trying to talk down to anyone. I, I, everything in me, I want to take this truth. I want to take this lifetime of study and I want to pass on this knowledge to you, and I want to put it in a, in a simple package 
that that you can open and and you'll get it as quickly as possible. That you that the lights will turn on and that it will give you a flash of insight. So what I'm trying to tell you is, in addition to all the other things happening in our society and world, you and I, and depending upon the age category, we have had to be parents in a generation of a war of social engineering, a war of scientific mind control, a war of political correctness embedded, a war of uh, attacking traditional moral values and demanding allegiance to socialist, communist, humanist, atheistic values, which, which they don't believe in values at all. Now, those of you that will be able to probably grasp the fullness of, of what I'm talking about the most comprehensively are all of you parents and grandparents that were children of the 60s and the 70s, you were children of the counterculture, because that period of time was the embodiment of the, Hux, the, the, the social engineers and the scientific dictatorship of Aldous Huxley as depicted in Brave New World, where a, a scientific elite, a scientific dictatorship program the masses through mind control program their morals, their beliefs, everything through scientific mind control, drugs, and technology. You and I grew up in that. The entire counterculture that you and I grew up in was not a spontaneous, random counterculture of rebellion that just happened to come to the surface. Everything from the rock and roll music we listen to, I mean, I'm talking about people who understand, like, who the rock group, the Doors were, Jimi Hendrix, the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, uh, Pink Floyd, and we could go on Janis Joplin, and we could go on and on and on. The hippies, Woodstock, LSD, marijuana, uh, all that entire counterfeit, all that entire counterculture. The counterculture was the product of a scientific mind control operation that targeted the youth culture in America, and it used the classical psychological operations or psyops principles developed by by institutions like the Tavistock Institute, the Rand Corporation, Stanford Research University, and other institutes. And so, remember, scientific mind control operates and is based on a, a formula developed by not only the British, the Americans, but the Nazi mind control scientists. And it was known as MK Ultra, And it, it, it caused massive radical behavioral change on a generational basis through, the youth, through pain, through a formula known as pain, drugs, and hypnosis. And there was mysteriously the mass, mass distribution of high-powered LSD tablets like Orange Sunshine and other tablets. How do you think, how do you think millions and millions of illegal doses of high-powered LSD ended up getting distributed free and swallowed and taken by teenagers and young adults from coast to coast and rock concerts all over America 
they were tripping their brains out on acid. How did that happen? And, and how come the, the cops and, and, and the rest of law enforcement didn't bust it and didn't shut it down? Because covertly, the social engineers, the people that were secretly behind MKUltra, wanted to create a rock and roll youth revolution that was strategically and deliberately anti-Christian. It was deliberately pagan, new age, and occultic. It was deliberately satanic and mystical. It was deliberately anti-Christian moral beliefs. And every phrase that they used, every lyric in their songs, every type of drug that they promoted, uh, all the behaviors they promoted, they all had one thing in common. They were strategically targeting the destruction of classical Western civilization. They were strategically deconstructing America by blowing the American mind, to use that proverbial term. That's simply the erasure of the cognitive, rational, historical Western approach with disciplined scientific thinking, uh, disciplined hard sciences like engineering and physics and mathematics, et cetera, et cetera, and replacing it with a neo-tribalism. A neo-tribalism where you basically run around naked, have sex in the mud. No, I'm not, I'm not making this up. That's what the 60s was all about. Have, having sex in the mud, running around, living on communes as if you were in some kind of jungle tribe. And that was all designed scientifically to destroy Western American civilization so it could be conquered externally. You understand? The globalist elite and the satanic elite, they planned, they financed the 60s, 70s counterculture, the Huxleys, H.G. Wells, and, and the whole thing. It, it was planned out using scientific mind control to create a revolution of the mind, which Aldous Huxley called the final revolution, the final revolution. Now, so now you're a parent, my parents, your parents, and talk about being over your head, no matter how gifted you were as a parent, no matter how loving you were as a parent, you are fighting against psychological, neurological, you are fighting against the plant. You are, listen to me, parents who were raising their kids, like my parents were raising me in that generation, without you really understanding what was happening, because it was concealed from you by the media, you weren't just having the proverbial battles between teenagers and their parents. You were, in fact, on a moral and spiritual and knowledge level, you were, in fact, fighting against the occult scientific dynamics of the Nazi mind control scientists who brought things like MKUltra and LSD and all the related procedures. They learned how to program. Uh, an entire generation through scientific mind control. So the average parent is doing battle, moral battle, spiritual battle, with evil geniuses that populated the Tavistock Institute, one of the first directors of the Tavistock Institute, the British mind control think tank, was Sigmund Freud, the famous psychoanalyst, father of psychoanalysis. And, Ta and Tavistock Institute, they were a bunch of geniuses but they were all about reprogramming America and the world. And they were buzzed, they were running around high on amphetamines. They were supercharging their brains neurologically, and they were 
taking all the massive studies in computer sciences that go back to the 1920s and the Macy's conferences in the 1920s. And the Macy's conferences brought together famous computer scientists like Norbert Wiener, the, the science of cybernetics, programming humans as if you would program a computer, um, cybernetics, computers, artificial intelligence and blending it with psychedelic drugs, altered states of consciousness, scientific mind control. Through the inputs of Stanford Research Institute, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and many other institutes, the work of John C. Lilly, Dr. John C. Lilly. I mean, this was heavy-duty stuff. I was immersed in this both personally, through my own personal experimentation, and majoring in altered states of consciousness and filmmaking at the University of Missouri. So parents were fighting this unseen satanic force, and they still are today. So now new generations of parents, like maybe many of you who are parents now, new generations of parents, you're involved in the same war with an unseen enemy, except decades have gone by, and they have upped the ante of the battle. They've upped the sophistication. They've upped the technology and the science and the biology of the weapons. The weapons that are mass mind control weapons are highly sophisticated. They're technological, they're neurological, they're biological, they're genetic, and they're, they, they, they're, they're generated with artificial intelligence and many, many new adventures, if you will, in advanced neurological science especially the category of electromagnetic frequencies and brain resonance, resonance for good or bad, or the good, the bad, and the ugly. So as a parent, you don't realize it. You think you're arguing. You're, you're, they're showing your kids in schools all across America explicit, explicit, highly graphic, ultra, triple X, 10 times X-rated videos, movies, pictures. Your kids' minds are being bombarded with ultra, ultra, out-of-the-box pornography that goes into every category of pornography, holding nothing back. And they are intentionally, by design, presenting children beginning in first grade and continuing on grade after grade. They keep upping the ante and delivering into your child's mind, spirit, and consciousness Highly powerful, arousing pornographic images designed to addict them to the lifestyle, to pornography, for the purpose of scientific mind control. So when these kids take these classes on sexuality, nothing, nothing is hidden. And so they use their, their, their student laptop computers, which many times the school system gives them, especially in the poorer neighborhoods. Uh, companies like Microsoft or Apple or whatever may donate computers so every kid has his own laptop. In any case, most kids in America, one way or another, have access to their own laptop. And if not a laptop, they obviously have, have access to their own cell phone, which is like a movie screen, television screen, as well as a computer. And when they're going through the curriculum of sex education, there's, there's hundreds of links. And the next thing you know, they're watching a full blown pornographic movie where where there's nothing held back and it's promoted 
And every behavior, every behavior is promoted. Every behavior is endorsed, is empowered, is accepted. Every behavior is defined as good for you, except perhaps killing somebody. Now, as a parent, you have to understand you're not just fighting sex, uh, illicit sex and porno and stuff. That's, 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 that's just a tiny piece of it. What you're fighting, and this, can, and this can be overwhelming, and I apologize, but I see too many parents, some being victorious when they meet with the school board, but many times the parents are, allow themselves to be outmaneuvered by the school board and the so-called experts that, that speak at the school boards. May I say something to you? Fooey on them. Fooey on them. Yeah, and the word is fooey. Fooey on them. Take them down in a peaceful, law-abiding, legal, intellectual, rational way. Expose them for who they are. Expose them and make them on the retreat. Don't allow them to marginalize you, divide you. Don't allow them to demonize you because you have Christian moral beliefs and you, ha- and you believe in right and wrong behavior. Don't allow them to get away with them. Outfox them. The righteous are supposed to be smarter and more clever than the children of the devil. So let's, let's act like it. But you have to understand, you're fighting a gigantic global machine financed by the same people who finance the vaccinations, the World Health Organization, UNESCO at the United Nations, the United Nations, uh, the Huxleys, the globalist elite, the World Economic Forum. They all want to take control of your child's minds, and not only the minds of your children, they want to own the neurological systems of your children. And you've got to understand, they don't care about sexual freedom. That's just the pretense. That's just the heroin or the crack cocaine they're trying to, to give to your kids to addict them, to addict them. What they're really after, the game they're really playing is they're using sex as an enticement. Okay? So so yeah, you've got to deal with that. I'm not saying you don't deal with that. You have to deal with it. But you have to look beyond that. The purpose of hypersexualizing your children is it gives them a doorway into the subconscious mind of your child, which allows them to place your child in a state of consciousness that is benevolent to scientific mind control, brainwashing, programming the human mind, program, programming your children to accept satanic ideologies, humanistic ideologies, and to drive a wedge between your child and the infinite personal living God of the universe. Remember, they're Satanists. And so their end game is to get your children to worship Satan one way or the other. Don't think that this is just too big for you to handle. You don't have the luxury of saying to yourself privately, this is just too big for me to handle. You don't have the luxury if you're talking to a spouse or, or other parents or whatever. You don't have the luxury in today's environment. You don't have the luxury of saying things like, this is just too big for me. I can't handle it. Because if you give in to that surrender, if you say that to yourself, what you're doing is you're surrendering to the forces of darkness. And the only thing between the forces of spiritual darkness and your children and this nation and you is you making the conscious and deliberate choice of no longer saying to yourself, this is overwhelming. I just can't handle it. It's too big for me. 
that is a privilege you no longer have. You must train your mind and spirit through the power of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, and the mind of Christ. You must train your mind, whether you feel like it or not, you must train your mind to conform to the Word of God. You must train your mind to conform to the Word of God. That is how you transform yourself into a victorious spiritual warrior who conquers the land. First, you have to conquer your mind. You have to conquer the giants that want to take your mind. And so you can no longer say the words, this is just too big for me. This is just beyond me. I simply can't handle it. Because if you do that, you're surrendering. And when you surrender, the souls of your children fall. America falls. So I want you to look at your children in, in, in their eyes with love. I want you to look at other children with love in, in your eyes. I want you to see the children around you in churches and schools and, and friends in the community. I want you to look at those children and those parents with the eyes of love, with the eyes of Jesus Christ. And then I want to ask you to ask yourself while you're looking at these children and young adults through the eyes of love, the eyes of Jesus Christ, I, I then want you to ask yourself the question, looking and seeing them as the creations of God, are you willing to give them over to, to the demonic forces of hell? Starting with a surrender that begins with an inner statement of, this is just too big for me to handle. I, I just can't, I can't deal with this. It's beyond me. Look in their eyes, and then ask yourself the question, are you going to go down the road of saying, this is just too big for me to handle, knowing full well the horrible consequences that await America, your children and grandchildren, if you choose to surrender prematurely? No, no, you can't do that. It doesn't matter what you feel like doing it. It doesn't matter what you feel like doing it. You have to resist it. You have to cry out to God for his power. It's a war. It's not a picnic. Who told you? you go, some of you are going to churches where they, they present Christianity as an endless picnic. I hate to break it to you. You're in the equivalent of World War III spiritually in America right now. You are not on a picnic. Okay? So take your blanket and stuff it. You're not on a picnic. Quit acting like you're on a picnic. There are times for picnics. After you defeat the enemy, after you protect yourself, your children, and your grandchildren after you have protected them from a deadly enemy. Oh, th yes, then you have the right in celebration of victory to enjoy a picnic. But you don't go on a picnic with the enemy drooling like a wolf, eager to, dev to devour your children. Now, this is what I want to say with, to you, and I'm going to say it to you directly, and this is straight from the heart. This is not condemnation. This is not condescension. I'm speaking straight from the heart. And you can feel the fact that I'm speaking to you straight from the heart, because you can sense in the resonance, in the vibrational resonance in my tone of voice, that I'm exposing to you a vulnerability, a love, a passion, and a compassion. Those of you, and many of you, are extremely discerning, can sense that. That I'm not talking to you from my head right now. I'm talking to you from my heart. I'm talking to you from a place where the Spirit of God is pouring through my heart. And the Spirit of God that is pouring through my heart is pouring into your life and into your mind right now. And it's dispelling the darkness. It's dispelling the darkness because greater is he that is in you 
than he that is in the world. And as we unite together and call on his name, you will live to see a law-abiding and peaceful, yet with with a force of infinite magnitude, the force of the power of God, you will see it overturn these strongholds of darkness, these kingdoms of darkness that have wedged their way into our children's hearts and minds and land. Now, we are called for such a time as this. And so you no longer say, I I can't deal with this, I can't handle it. Perhaps, let's just say this, though, perhaps for the sake of argument, for the sake of discussion, let's let's say you can't handle it. Okay, fine. You were not supposed to handle it in and by yourself to begin with. So you got into trouble the moment you crossed the street where you you decided that at one point you were deciding to win this battle in your own strength and and willpower and mind. You can't win this battle in your own willpower, mind, and inner strength. You can't win the battle like that. It will destroy you. It will destroy me. This battle is too big for you and me in and of ourselves. The key to winning the battle is to stop trying to win the battle on our own strength, our own wisdom, our own power, our own strategies. No, we can't win that way. The great secret to unleashing this supernatural dunamis power of God, the great secret is stop trying to do it on your own human energy and reach out to God with childlike faith. Do it now. Start now. Start at this second. We don't have a second to lose. We're deep into the night. And let me tell you something. Even though we're deep into the night, God is calling a remnant, and God is calling you, and he, you can hear his voice reverberate, reverberating in the corridors of your mind. You hear the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords saying to you now, he's calling you by name, and guess what he's saying? He's saying to you, hold back the night. Hold back the night. You see, God has given his people the power not their power, his power. God has given us his power to hold back the night, which means to hold back, to push back, to block the invasion, the attempted invasion of satanic powers and the powers of darkness. We are called by God in the last days when he says, occupy the land, occupy the land until I come. That means hold back the night. And as you step out by faith, and begin to, by faith, using and calling on the strength and the power of Jesus Christ, you will discover that all of a sudden you are quickened with an infusion of the Holy Spirit. And much to your surprise, you will awake to find that you are, at this moment, not just standing there, but you are an effective child of God who is, who is holding back the night. And I ask you to join me. No retreat, no surrender. Hold back the night. Stand with me with your prayers. Ask God what you contribute financially with your donations and contributions. Become a prayer warrior for me, my family, and everybody associated with this ministry. Help us fight the rigging wars, which are evil and malicious and lying. And together, together, we'll hold back the night. Greater is he that is is in us than he that is in the world. God bless you. This is your brother in Christ. Stand strong. Stand strong, because the greater one lives inside you. And guess what? He is not finished yet.